This reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 1 to 13. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. But Timothy has now just come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. I'm going to pray again as we come to look at God's word. Father in heaven, thank you that you do speak to us. And as we look at this very personal part of Paul's letter, please may we get a glimpse inside his heart and the heart of people who have served you for the last two millennia. And Father, may that help all of us as we grow in the faith and as we look forward to the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've called this sermon Inside the Mind of a Church Leader, so it might not be very interesting, but it won't be very long either, so don't worry about it. And I want to talk about this because most of the publicity that church leaders get is when there's been a scandal. So you might have heard recently about Ravi Zacharias, who wasn't a church leader per se, he was an evangelist. but he was very highly regarded and very well liked and he'd helped a lot of people in their faith um, as an evangelist he was very good at explaining the uh, the evidence behind the faith and uh, the philosophy behind it as well and how we interpret different viewpoints and different worldviews and then after his death it came out that he'd been involved in a series of scandals and that knocked an awful lot of people's faith because if the person they regarded so highly could be involved in those scandals, then could the things they said be trusted? So I want to do a talk on the inside, the inside of the mind of a church leader, really to speak on behalf of the, the hundreds, the thousands, maybe tens, hundreds of thousands of church leaders throughout the UK, throughout the world, today 
who are going about their task with integrity and with love because they don't often get a lot of press and I'm not speaking from my high horse here. Um, I need church leaders as much as uh, the, you know, and the next person. People have taught me, people have discipled me, people are still examples to me in the faith. And so there's never a hierarchy where you get to the top of it. There's always somebody else that you can look up to and learn from. And I suppose within this definition of church leader, I'm including all sorts of people who have been Christians for some time and are setting an example to others in the faith. And the reason I want to talk about this is that the bit of 1 Thessalonians we come to tonight is very personal. Paul is talking directly to the Thessalonian church, and it builds on what Chris was saying last week about the ties that bind, about Paul's love for the people in Thessalonica. And so he doesn't really delve that much into theology, but everything he says has a theological impact. So we're going to look at that. But really, this is personal. This is from his heart and his mind. And really, it shows the heart and the mind of so many godly leaders around the country and around the world today. I want to tell you about one particular individual called Ishvan Salanki. He is the minister of the Hungarian Reformed Church in London. And I came across him because my church in Guernsey used to go to a Bible conference and they'd send people each year. And each year I went along from when I was about 18 or so. It was in London and Ishvan had a connection with the church. So he hosted us for breakfast each time we went. And it was an early start because he lived in a different part of London. So we'd be up at the crack of dawn, maybe five o'clock or whatever, jump on the tube. We'd stop by at his for breakfast see his children. It was great fun. And uh, then we go on to our Bible studies and the conference afterwards. Ishvan, an amazing guy. And because he's probably the only Hungarian reform pastor in the whole of the UK, he draws a congregation from across London and across the UK, but such a humble man. You'd never think, speaking to him, that really had quite a lot of influence. I mean, people in the Hungarian embassy would come and chat to him and he had a good connection with them. The ambassador would quite often come to his services, but such a godly and humble man and always delighted to open his home to us. I went for a visit actually not so long ago and uh, really just said, when are you free? And he said, come whenever you like, just turn up and you'll be very warmly welcome. And they gave me some food and, and all the rest of it and showed me hospitality. Now, uh, I got a call from his fan not so long ago, and um, I thought, you know, we were chatting for about 20 minutes, and I thought, when is he going to ask me to do something for him? <laughs> you know, whether um, perhaps take a Bible study or meet somebody he knew that lived around here or point somebody in the direction of the church. But he, he, he didn't want me to do anything. He was just calling to see how I was. And he has a lot of people in his care. And I was one person he'd seen for breakfast over several years, once a year. I hadn't seen him that frequently, but he just gave me a call out the blue just to see how I was doing, to make sure I was well, to make sure I was still walking with the Lord. And that really encouraged me. Ishvan is an example of all kinds of church leaders out there. And of course, I could have mentioned church leaders closer to home. <laughs> we all know church leaders in Christchurch and in the area who are doing things just like that, giving people a call to encourage them um, and so on. 
I'd also want to say that church leaders are human. And sometimes we will slip up. Sometimes we will act without thinking. And sometimes we will think without acting. And so perhaps people in, in this church elsewhere may have experienced with me and I apologise. Perhaps you've wondered why I haven't been in touch at a particular time or something like that or haven't been in touch more. And quite often we, we will have thought about it and then not acted purely because we are human and we make mistakes. And if you saw into the mind of a church leader at that moment, you would probably see regret. So we're certainly not perfect and we have our fair share of ordinary troubles as well, like having to pay for insurance and things like that. But, you know, all of those chores that come into our mind and uh, keep us occupied during the week. But in this um, letter, 1 Thessalonians, I want to give us a, a peek into the mind of a church leader in three ways that Paul brings out. And first of all, that is, what is it that brings us to our knees in prayer? What gets us down? Secondly, what brings a song to our lips? What cheers us up? And finally, what brings a message to our hearts? Or why do we do this job anyway? <laughs> so what drives us to our knees? What brings a song to our lips? And what brings a message to our hearts? And first thing, what drives us to our knees? Well, funnily enough, it's the same thing in this last year or so that brought Paul to his knees back in AD 50 or thereabouts. And that is that Paul couldn't see the Thessalonians and we can't see you. We're stuck apart. We're absent from each other. So let me just read a little bit of the uh, Bible, starting with the bit we read last week. Chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, this young church, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated with the, uh, from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And Chris spoke about that last week. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. So the first thing to say, obviously, is that uh, Paul is longing to see the Thessalonians. And I couldn't let this opportunity go without saying that we as church leaders, as a staff team, are longing to see you all as well. It, encourages us so much when we see people writing in the live chat. Can you imagine if that live chat was empty week by week? We'd be really down about things, but just seeing people's names popping up there and knowing that you're there and listening in is a tremendous encouragement to us. We really miss you and we really want to see you. But Paul uh, also says that he was missing the Thessalonians for a particular reason. In verse 10, he says, night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. I don't know how we take that today, that we might have something lacking in our faith. We tend to uh, sort of swing towards the idea of, well, because faith is such a simple thing, it's 
literally trust in Christ and you will be saved, which is the gospel, there isn't anything lacking in my faith that I can pick up from somebody else. But we all know we've got to grow, don't we? And the question is, how much have we got to have we got to learn? If I said to you, how much do you think you have got to learn from the church leaders and from Christians who have been Christians for a longer time than you have? I wonder what the answer would be. And if you said, I've got a lot to learn, my next question, here's a little test question. If that's the case, how often do you seek out the company of those other Christians who have been Christians for a longer time than you to learn from their faith? The Thessalonians wanted to be with Paul. So in verse six, Paul said, but Timothy has just now come to us from you. Paul sent Timothy out. Timothy's come back. And Timothy has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Now, I know that I'm speaking to the committed Sunday at six crowd. And you do seek out the company of Christians. You long to be at church and to feed on God's word. So maybe it's uh, I'm not pointing the finger at you and saying you need to seek out the company of Christians more. But you'll know people that do. And so perhaps the application for you could be to just give those people a bit of a prompt. And as churches open again more and more in the next six months or so, the next year, maybe you've got people you know who perhaps are Christians, perhaps have been on the edge of church in the past, and they just need a little encouragement from you to say, we all need to grow in our faith. That's a very non-confrontational way of putting it, isn't it? We all need to grow in our faith, come along with us to church, and we can learn together from each other. Paul was longing to see the Thessalonians. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to supply what was lacking in their faith. And he was also worried about them. Verse five says, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, Paul's really sort of worried here, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. When I was a child, I had years of various musical instrument lessons, piano, guitar, things like that. But sadly, if my music teachers met me now, I think they would probably think they had labored in vain. All that hard work they poured into me as a child has basically come to nothing, unfortunately. I'm sad to say. I'm trying to take up the piano again now a little bit. During lockdown, it seemed a good thing to do. And I've been forced into taking up the guitar again as well by a keen staff team who want me to play, play guitar from time to time at the front. So I'm very grateful for that, actually. It spurred me on to pick up these musical instruments again. But the redeeming factor of the fact that I haven't kept up my practice is that firstly, my music teachers got paid for their work, so they didn't mind too much. And secondly, not keeping up my music practice hasn't put me in any immediate danger. My life does not depend on how well I play the piano or the guitar. Paul, of course, didn't get paid for his work. And he came to the Thessalonians with a message 
that was absolutely vital for them if they were to escape judgment. We'll think about that a bit later on as we come to the Lord's table. One day we'll meet God beyond the grave, and when that happens, the Bible teaches us that we will face God in judgment and account for every act that we have done, every thought that we have had, every word that we have said. And it doesn't take us very long to think of things that we would rather didn't, didn't come out into the open. And one thing that drove Paul, one thing that drives all church leaders is to keep everyone going in the faith because we don't want to have shared this message of escape from judgment, this message of hope beyond the grave, only to hear that as time has gone on, people have left that message and drifted away from it. And Paul actually gives us a couple of reasons why he's afraid this will happen. And for us, forewarned is forearmed. So we can take note of these things and go on walking with the Lord. And hopefully that will mean that our respective church leaders, you know, including the people who poured time and energy into me, can look at us in the future and say, look, they, they're going on with the Lord. They have trusted in him and they will persevere all the way to the end. And that's a really great thing, as we'll see later. So two things, two reasons why Paul is afraid the Thessalonians might have left behind this message that he's given them. The first is what he calls trials or persecutions. So in verse two, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in the faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. So trials or persecutions. It says that trials are unsettling. He, Paul says, we don't want anyone to have been unsettled by these trials. Now, in this context, we know that Paul is talking about the Jewish opponents of the Christian message, because we read in Acts that the those Jewish opponents actually chased Paul out the city and they followed him to the next city, Berea, and they chased him out of there as well. And obviously it won't be anything quite so dramatic for us, at least in the near future. So what is the pressure that comes on us? It's not pressure from... Um, the, the religion we've come out of, if, as, uh, as it were. It's not pressure to conform to Judaism once again, as Paul experienced. You remember the Galatian church who experienced an enormous amount of pressure to go back to their Jewish customs as a way to get right with God, doing things to make themselves better in God's sight. And Paul says that doesn't work. That's not the gospel. We don't really have that pressure so much, do we? In our context, I think it's more the pressure to be secular which doesn't necessarily even mean abandoning our faith. It just means not talking about it. It just means keeping our faith to ourselves and not particularly allowing it to shape our lives and particularly not allowing it to shape our society around us, but instead just being tolerant of other people's views, other people's beliefs, 
keeping ourselves to ourselves. Now, I wonder if many of you would raise your hands if I asked, has a fear that people will think you are arrogant or intolerant ever stopped you sharing your faith? I think I would probably raise my hand at that. And I think we can say that in some way this is, it's a trial that Paul is talking about. Because we, we don't want to be in a situation where we are censored from even saying, to, even talking about the things that matter to us. And yet we are in our society. It's not that we can talk about them and other people can say, yeah, that's fine, um, you know, I'm not bothered. There is a slight hostility towards people who open the conversation with, have you heard about Jesus or some other similar line. It's quite subtle, isn't it? And that pressure unsettles our core beliefs. It's quite difficult, actually, to believe that everyone will one day appear before God in judgment. If you are the only person sitting on a very long train who actually believes that, and you're surrounded by crowds of people, you're the only one who believes it. That's unsettling. Why, if it's, so, if it's true, if God is the king of the universe, if there will be a judgment, if there is life beyond the grave, why does nobody around me seem to believe that? These are trials that are unsettling. But our text tells us uh, one way we can be prepared for unsettling conditions, which is that we are destined for them. Did you notice that? Paul said, for you know quite well that we are destined for these trials, even persecution. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And Acts 14.22 says, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When we know to anticipate suffering, the good thing is that we understand that this is part of God's plan and it helps us to remain faithful when that trouble comes. I don't know if when you were learning to drive, you had to do the uh, emergency stop. I'm guessing you did. Everyone has to do the emergency stop, surely. And it's helpful when you're doing that for the instructor to say, when you apply anti-lock brakes, when you slam your foot on the accelerator, uh, sorry, on the brake, not the accelerator, that wouldn't work very well. When you slam your foot on the brake, it will feel like the car is shaking itself apart and about to fall apart around you. Especially if you've just bought a new car that you're learning to drive in and you slam your foot on the brake. When the instructor says it's supposed to do that, it puts your mind at ease and you can put your foot on the brake. When we're living our Christian lives, if we know that we are destined for trouble, it doesn't make the trouble any easier, but at least we know it's supposed to do that. It's not a surprise. It might still unsettle us, but we can trust God. Tim Keller quoted recently, um, sorry, he tweeted recently this quote, God has got to be great enough to have some reasons for letting you go through things you can't understand. So a big picture of God, a big vision of God, and the knowledge that we will suffer will help us be forearmed. The second reason that Paul is worried the Thessalonians might have abandoned their faith is temptation. Verse 5. 
I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you. Temptations destroy faith by definition because a temptation is a desire to do something that is not in keeping with your identity as a Christian. And so by definition, it is destroying your faith. That's worth keeping in mind every time you face a temptation, because you can tell yourself, by yielding to this temptation, I am choosing to destroy my faith. Temptations are like that because they are weapons that are being used against us. Paul said, I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you. In the bit before that Chris spoke on last week, he talks about Satan preventing him from going to the Thessalonian church. He's very open about the fact that we have a spiritual enemy, a powerful enemy. We don't really know very much about him. We just know that he is an enemy. He is the tempter. He accuses us before God. He says, you know, that person's not good enough. And here the tempter might have tempted us. And that brings us on to um, one other reason why Paul is worried that the Thessalonians might have abandoned their faith. And that is really what I said at the beginning. And that is he is not with them to strengthen them. So we've got these trials, we've got temptations. They're the two big reasons. But all, all in all, the thing that was driving Paul to his knees was that he wasn't with the Thessalonian church. And so Christian company, it's good for us to keep Christian company because iron sharpens iron, as the proverb says. We bounce off each other, we strengthen each other, we can share difficulties and troubles, can't we? And so hopefully before too long, we will be able to be together once again. But more positively, that's what brings us to our knees. What brings a song to our lips? And Paul talks about this as well. And it's God's people standing firm, which in practice means faith and love. So let me read verse eight. Paul says, now that we've heard this report from Timothy, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Now, when Paul says, now we really live. That's a bit like us saying, now I can breathe freely. I remember uh, watching a TV show once. I can't remember what I was watching, but what was uh, sort of etched in my mind from that time on, and it might've been 10 years ago I was watching this TV show, was a man from India who had very little in the way of possessions, money, house, wealth, car, whatever, didn't really have any of that. He was wearing very poor clothes, but he said, because I've worked hard, I've worked for hours every day for years on end, I've been able to support all of my children through university. And then he said, my children are my wealth. Because he'd been able to support his children into a brighter future, his poverty didn't really matter. He was encouraged because his children were, if you like, standing firm. They would move forward. They had kept going. They'd gone into successful careers. They'd really taken a step 
up when it came to quality of life and they were his wealth. It's a bit like uh, if my music teacher saw me performing brilliantly in a concert, I'm afraid it's not going to happen, but uh, <laughs> then they would be pleased, you know, and they'd have invested in me and they'd have seen the result of that. And Paul has invested in the Thessalonians and he sees the result, which is faith and love. That's verse six. But Timothy has just now come to us and brought good news about your faith and love. I'm running out of time a little bit, so I'm going to move a little bit faster through this. Faith and love, obviously two distinguishing marks of being a Christian. I uh, came across a guy once when I was working in, in property who had just bought a house and he was having the kitchen redone. Very nice kitchen and had a beautiful stone worktop. And when he took out the old kitchen to replace it with a new, a nice new kitchen, he asked the builders to smash up the old worktop so that nobody else could have it. And it doesn't take much to think, well, that person isn't a Christian because they're not exhibiting much love. Now, obviously, that sort of thing shocked all of my non-Christian work colleagues as well. It's a pretty extreme example. But faith and love have to go hand in hand. And if you have faith without love, then that faith might not really be real. It's, uh, it's, it's faith without standing firm. But if you have love without faith, then you're not a Christian. You're just a nice person. So we need faith and love. And one thing we can ask ourselves that's very good to do is, out of all of the temptations that I face, am I more likely to become less loving or less faithful? Am I more likely to become perhaps more selfish or just lose heart in the faith that has been entrusted to me and perhaps lose my confidence in what I've been taught? Am I more likely to lose faith or love. And again, forewarned is forearmed. But it brings us uh, joy to hear of people who are standing firm in the faith. Paul says, uh, Timothy has just now come and brought us good news about your faith and love. Now we can breathe freely. We're so pleased. And what brings a message to our hearts? In other words, what are we trying to achieve when we preach and teach? Now, as I said at the beginning, scandals abound in the Christian world and there will be people who stand at the front and they are trying to uh, become popular. They're trying to gain a following. They're trying to gain power. Maybe they're trying to gain money. There are various sexual scandals, all sorts of problems that can face somebody standing at the front of a church. But as I also said at the beginning, how many hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of Christian leaders are there across the world who have a message in their hearts? And it comes to their hearts because the Holy Spirit has given it to them to share with others. Isn't that encouraging? Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So in that last bit of the letter, the last prayer, Paul gives us the foundation of the message that he is bringing to the Thessalonians. Well, it's definitely true that we want everyone's love to increase and overflow. It's also true that we want everyone's heart to be strengthened 
But I want to focus on a, the last bit there and what really makes a difference, what really brings a message to our hearts is first of all, a possibility and secondly, a certainty. And I want to deal with the certainty first. The certainty is that our Lord Jesus will come with all his holy ones. His holy ones there being the angels or perhaps those who have died in Christ before his return. As you know from the book of Acts, right at the beginning, all the disciples have been with Jesus for days, weeks after his resurrection. And then he is lifted up into the sky and they stand there gawping up into the sky. And an angel says to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. And there were those standing there on that day who were so taken by that message that they devoted their entire lives to preaching it, that Jesus would one day return. And many of them gave their lives as martyrs for that message because they believed it was true and certain. What's interesting is that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Thessalonian church, was not one of those ones who stood gawping up, looking up into the sky. He wasn't there on that day. And yet he could say to Titus when he wrote another letter that he was waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so what motivates me and what motivates church leaders all over the world is the certainty that this will take place. And we don't know when, but it will take place. Christ will return. And that brings me on to the possibility. The possibility is that we will all be together, blameless and holy in the presence of our God when Jesus Christ returns. Jesus said, this is in Luke 12, 40. You must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. And the message to believe is really quite simple. It's be ready. And then this possibility can become part of the certainty. That when Christ returns, it is certain that we will be together, holy and blameless in the presence of our God. I'm going to leave it there and we're going to celebrate Holy Communion together. I had a bit more to say, but I've gone on a bit, so I apologise for that. So get your bread and wine ready there. And as we come to communion, we should remember the warnings and promises that we read of in Scripture. And so we should examine our hearts and we should repent of our sins. Let me read a few of those warnings and promises from the Bible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, 
malice, deceit, lewdness or sensuality, pleasure seeking, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's now pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our neighbour in thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and enable us to serve you in a new and transformed life to the glory of your name. Amen. One of the promises we love and hold dear in the Bible is this one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We're going to listen to a song now as we prepare our hearts to receive the bread and wine and let's reflect on everything Jesus has done for us. <laughs> 